Uh, thanks for coming in on this uh, beautiful uh, morning. And um, so this morning I was uh, standing in the shower where I, I do a lot of my best thinking. Um, and um, polishing my extensive notes for, for this talk and realizing um, <clears throat> that I had planned to um, speak of uh, or mention three novels that, that I've written which in, involve, I don't know, hot button issues is necessarily, but, but certainly issues of the day. Um, in the last three novels I published. In Days of Awe, uh, it's about a Jewish pitcher for an unnamed National League team in Queens who's been suspended indefinitely for being involved with gamblers and, and becomes involved in a gun control referendum in California, so gun control. Um, Child of My Right Hand uh, is, is about uh, parents supportive parents raising an openly gay teenager in a conservative uh, Midwestern town. And Twelfth um, and Race, uh, just published, is really um, you know about race and love, but about race and history, and it's, it's about a mixed-race couple set against the backdrop of race riots uh, in a fictional Midwest city. And <clears throat> so as, as I was thinking about what I was going to say in you and, and really smart, hopefully, advice about um, how to do these. And I, and I, I am going to, uh, such topics, I am going to uh, provide advice, smart or otherwise. Um, I, in that shower moment, I suddenly realized that in my first and blissfully unpublished novel, I was doing the same thing. You know, this is a novel written in college uh, called Emergency, but it was really about, uh, I was ahead of my time and ahead of my uh, ability to do it, but it was a, it was a Vietnam novel uh, written in, seven, you know, while I was in college, it ultimately got me into grad school, but it was about somebody back from Vietnam working in an emergency room. And so, um, He'd been a medic in Vietnam, and, and he was uh, working in an emergency room upon his return, and, and this was in the mid-'70s, and, and it was actually before you, um, one could really write about Vietnam. Uh, uh, dispatches by Michael Herr hadn't come out yet, nor had Going After Cacciato, the first kind of significant fiction by Tim O'Brien set in the Vietnam uh, War, which made it all possible. Um, so I realized that, you know, not only am I either a three-time winner or a loser, but I've been a loser or winner going back to my first impulse to write a long uh, piece of fiction. Um, and so <clears throat> I was um, forced to think about, while I was um, soaping up or unsoaping, you know, why that would be. You know, what is it that... Uh, leads me to be uh, writing about that. It's not as if, you know, I, I'm... Uh, uh, and, I, and I think the answers are straightforward. They're the things I care about. Um, it's not um, that... Uh, 
although in the 60s and 70s I, I was you know, involved in, in political protests and, and activity um, in the way that I'm probably not now, but I'm still politically engaged. And so these are the things that, that are in my mind. Uh, and uh, and uh, I guess that one way of thinking about what it is that I realize I've been trying to do and, um, is that uh, some issue that, that concerns, concerns me, and I think that's the first key point, it needs to be an issue that concerns you. I don't really think you can decide, I'm going to write about that. Wouldn't that, that be a cool thing to write about and then sort of work it up in some way? Uh, but it is something that you need to have made some real emotional connection to. Um, provide sort of the moral setting. Um, you can think of, um, of novels having uh, a world in which they exist, in which the uh, characters' lives are, are working themselves out. And you know, for tricks of history and, 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 and my own concerns, Part of the setting has always been something that's going on in the world that has concerned me. And I think here is the key thing that really needs to concern um, one of your characters. That the way into um, writing about something is, to, is through character. That um, it needs to be some sort of uh, compelling uh, concern for, uh, if not your primary point of view character, certainly for its significant consciousness uh, in your novel. So, um, and I think that there are different ways that I've done that, and I think different ways in, in which you might as well. Um, because uh, the primary concern, if you're trying to write about or include some issue of the day, is how do you avoid uh, the worst of all things in a novel being either preachy or didactic, which you know really the last thing you really want to be uh, accused of. And I think that, again, the answer uh, to to that is somehow working it in through uh, one of your characters. Um, and for me, <clears throat> um, the success of writing an, a novel that involves some sort of significant issue is um, both the complexity of your treatment, treatment of the subject and in a way, sort of the naturalness of it. Um, certainly, I think in that first flawed novel of mine, in, in uh, which an editor rejecting it said that there's a quality of unrelenting ugliness about this. Um, now, you know, it, it should be said that, that certain phrases stay with you, and that one has certainly stayed with me. Um, that, that, that editor, whose name, of course, I've forgotten, you know, almost immediately, was probably right. You know, my, my anger about, about that war um, colored everything that, that, uh, that I was doing. Um, 
by the time I was writing in Days of Awe, about 20 years ago, however, and I think here's another perhaps takeaway, that if you're writing, if you're including a significant issue or something that concerns you in the world, the novel doesn't necessarily need to be about that. It's not that the novel is about, in this case, gun control. Um, but it is something that colors the, the moral setting and becomes involved in the plot. And I'll explain what I mean uh, by that. Jewish Joe Singer, my protagonist, is someone who's, uh, uh, without giving you the minutia of it, is banned from uh, baseball for a year for being involved with gamblers. He, um, uh, what, his guilt or innocence is, is a little bit ambiguous, which is, is always good. And um, he is hiding out <coughs> in um, Hermosa Beach, California, uh, when, the, when the, the novel opens, and amusing himself, as, as many a professional athlete has, by sleeping with two different women, one on Tuesday and Thursday, and one on Monday and Wednesday. And all of uh, this goes uh, horribly wrong, because uh, it turns out that one of the um, women that he's sleeping with has a psychopath for a husband, um, who uh, uh, attempting to, to shoot uh, Joe um, uh, shoots the woman on his front porch. And people that he knows in Hermosa Beach, where he's living, are involved in a fictional um, uh, gun control referendum uh, that's taking place in California. So somebody who's, who, who has befriended him uh, is involved in that. And so this, when I, I'm going to read you a short section from this novel, and it involves... Um, what I've come to think of, and, and I think it's another perhaps takeaway, is kind of a, a uh, what might be thought of as almost a conversion experience. You know that if um, the characters that you're writing about already know what they think about something, you know that has, and there's no growth in terms of what they believe about the world, and and in a way know and believe about themselves, then you are committing, you know, A, it's sort of didactic, and B, it's also kind of preaching to the choir. I mean, because what we're following is somebody's thinking about an issue. And so they need to um, change in their mind. And so um, <clears throat> Joe is, um, after that this woman was shot, has uh, um, been in a total and complete funk. And uh, he's now come out of that and um, uh, I'm gonna, and he's going to um, uh, meet uh, the man named Des, who's a reverend who's running this, this referendum. And Des, the only thing he needs to know is, is the boyfriend of, this, of, Joe's, um, of Joe's friend, who's his, also his volleyball partner. That's what he's doing to stay in shape. And he's also kind of, as novels would have it, uh, sort of in love with this, with this woman, Franny. Um, 
Tuesday morning, just after 8, Joe was hurrying down to 16th Street Hill. The breakfast with Des was Franny's idea. He agreed, not because he wanted to, but because she'd asked. All week, she'd brought him food, done his laundry, insisted they play Scrabble, then let him win. She rented a fish called Wanda and made him watch it, though he'd seen it twice before. She smiled a lot. She either didn't notice or didn't mind that the apartment was trashed, that most days he didn't have the energy to shave, that he'd often stop mid-sentence and didn't go on. She was enormously kind. He had to admit he felt better, not a lot, but enough so he noticed. He didn't want to feel better. No, that wasn't it. He wanted to feel better for a reason, not because he was too simple-minded to stay depressed. When he was a boy, baseball had saved him. Throw hard and you're normal. He wasn't 10 any longer, and he'd used up the healing power of sports. Or had he? Joe started across Hermosa Avenue. Yesterday morning, he jogged for the first time since the shooting. In the afternoon, he worked out with small weights. That's why he felt better. Hey, Joe, he thought, and stopped in the middle of the street. Hey, Joe, as traffic stopped, but no one blew their horn because this was Hermosa Beach, not Manhattan. You're one of those dinosaurs with plates all over its head and a brain the size of a pebble. A girl dies in your arms. It's your fault. Then you run a few miles. The sun's shining. The young girls are barely bothering to cover their nipples, so everything's okay. In the middle of Hermosa Avenue, Joe dropped to his knees. He raised his hands overhead, clasped them together. Finally, horns began to blow. Hey, asshole, someone shouted. Hey, asshole, get out of the way. Dear God, thought Joe, I have sinned and do not know the way home. Hey, asshole, the voice shouted again. Hey, you. There were other voices and a dozen horns blowing at once until the sound was like a crowd on the road screaming for a home run, a wild pitch, the pitcher's blood. Help me, thought Joe, for I am truly lost. Then he felt a hand grip his right shoulder. They say the Lord is wherever you find him, but I think you're pushing it, said Des. <laughs> Joe looked up into Des's blue eyes. Besides, we're meeting at the right stuff. Des pulled Joe to his feet. What do you say? Sometime later, over their third cups of coffee served up by the waitress, Joe said, Franny must have told you about what happened with Rachel. I think you better, said Des. She was young. She was married. Her husband found out. After keeping her hostage two weeks, he brought her to my porch, made her ring the bell, then shot her. She died in my arms. Joe made a face. Needless to say, he's a wacko bastard. Des smiled. It was not his idea to be here. He agreed only because Franny had insisted long and loudly that he must thank God and Franny. Joe was quite entertaining. Franny said, Rachel saved your life, that the husband was trying to shoot you. When I see him again, said Joe, I'll ask. Joe sipped his coffee. He blotted his lips on a napkin. His movements and what Des could see of his face beneath the dark glasses were jumpy, nervous, remembering his performance in the middle of Hermosa Avenue, hands raised in prayer while the traffic went crazy. Des wondered if Joe's problem was too much cocaine, which would also explain the dark glasses. By the way, Joe began, the part about her being shot on my porch is confidential. This entire conversation is privileged, said Des. 
Joe nodded and removed his Ray-Bans. His eyes were large and a deep, muddy brown. Same color as his hair. For a moment, until his pupils adjusted, the light seemed to blind him. What Franny didn't tell you because she didn't know was that I'm having an affair with another married woman. You've been busy, said Dez. Are you still? Not for two weeks. Joe looked away, lost, Dez imagined, in some private meditation. He waited, listening to the conversation at the next table, condos, redondo, and farther off, beneath all the chatter, the tumble of waves. You don't know me, I'm not really like that, but when I got out here in January, after he'd been uh, banned by the commissioner, I was so fucked up, he said. Joe slapped the table with the flat of his hand. Excuse my French. Des grinned. In many ways, he thought Joe's just a sweet, dumb guy. Forget it. That's one of my favorite words. And about what happened last year, I read the sport pages. You want to talk about it? Joe immediately looked so distressed, Des thought he was going to run. Some other time, said Joe. Real professional, Reverend, thought Des. Joe said, I never thought anything like this would happen. I mean, she's dead. Joe's eyes cast about and fixed on Des, and I didn't love her. I didn't even pretend to. He hesitated, his eyes large and moist. For what? For what? He swiped at the corners of his eyes, then dropped his chin into his palms. Des waited a moment, then said as gently as he could, I get the impression you've been asking yourself that a lot lately. Wouldn't you, said Joe? Joe was clearly in pain, and though Des distrusted athletes, especially famous ones on principle, and though he was suspicious of Joe and Franny's relationship in particular, Des's heart went out to him. He said, I ask myself why and for what all the time. Then something or someone reminds me that those of us who believe in the supreme being, which you must, given your performance on Hermosa Avenue, Des smiled. Surely he was permitted a small smile. I am reminded there are certain things we are not to know. Certain events, however painful or tragic, are beyond us, and we must simply accept them. I can't, said Joe. I want to do something. What are the police doing? Trying to find the sicko bastard. For a moment, Des thought he could see the idea move through Joe's eyes. Joe, such a curious mixture of sensitive and slow-witted. For a moment, it seemed as if he were going to apologize again for swearing. Then Joe said, if Emil were here, I'd kill him. No, you wouldn't, said Des. You're right. What I really want to do, and I know this sounds stupid, is make it so Rachel didn't die in vain. That's Admiral, said Des, not stupid. Des waited for whatever Joe was going to say next. Somewhere down the line, surely not at this breakfast, but soon, he'd hit Joe up for a sizable contribution to the campaign. Joe said, I thought maybe I could help with your gun campaign. Who was reading whose thoughts, thought Des. What did you have in mind? I could give testimonials. I mean, I've seen the horrors of domestic violence when a handgun's involved. Or do you think, because of the scandal, what do you think? I guess, said Joe, but a lot of people know who I am. Um, from that point on, really, this novel kind of shifts into Joe trying to, you know, uh, make up for what he considers what he's done wrong, and the way he does that is through being involved with this campaign. And I think that was the way in, in which, for the first time, I actually found a successful way into writing about uh, an issue in the world uh, through my character's involvement in it. So 
the advice that I would give is that um, if you're going to be writing about, you know, a hot button, then it needs to be something that you care about and something you have a connection to, and then you need to introduce it through character. I heard John Irving once deliver a long talk about research. How do you get research into a novel? You know, if it's something that reader needs to know. And again, it tends to be through point of view. Uh, he was actually at that moment talking about cider house rules, and it was, this was about abortion in the mid, in mid century, and he, which was a lot of what he was writing about in that. So, through character. Um, I think it's also uh, a reasonable piece of advice to introduce the subject matter that most concerns you through a character that's not you, that's not your emanation or representation in the novel. Um, I think that complicates the issue, you know, and, and makes, will shield you from your desire to be preaching about something that does matter to you. So make it something that um, your character has come to care about, you know, through some sort of small or large conversion experience. Um, but what if it is something that you really do care about and, um, and the novel is instructed in such a way that you're sort of in it, you know, or at least some fictional emanation of you. And, I, and I'm thinking now about, you know, Child of My Right Hand, um, novel that, you know, published, that published in 2004. Uh, I have a gay son. Um, and so the issue of, of uh, raising a, a gay son uh, in an intolerant world was one that, you know, it was pretty much impossible for me to disengage myself from. Uh, I began writing this novel really, you know, by surprise. I was in an artist colony uh, working on another novel. And he was being harassed back at home. And, uh, you know, the, the prologue, which is how I'll end this talk by reading you a bit of it, just kind of popped into my head. And so, um, and so then you're forced with, with a way of tweaking, you know, your experience through your character's experience in some way that makes it feel sort of uh, fresh. In this case, um, you know, the, the narrator of, the, of this novel, professor, but professor of history of science, um, has been working <clears throat> on Nazi eugenics for a long time and taking himself out of the issue that he's thinking about. And he, um, he begins to think about uh, uh, the gay gene and, and thinking about that. So I found my way into that novel uh, by creating a character who was clearly, you know, only this far removed from me, but by changing him in a way, you know, by changing um, who he was, but we were thinking about the same things, but we were thinking about them in different ways. So that, um, but nonetheless, um, uh, he was intellectualized and therefore at a, at a remove from me. Uh, in Twelfth and Race, which just come out, um, I really writing 
about um, you know race relations in, in America, and uh, you know this, this you know is my fifth novel, it's the fifth time out, and you know in the in the vast American room, you know race is you know the, the giant gorilla. Um, so I don't think that it's an issue that necessarily that I was thinking about more than anybody else. Um, uh, and, um, <clears throat> but um, as somebody who was living in Cincinnati at the time of which uh, there were racial troubles there in, um, in 2001, there, there have been several uh, uh, young black men uh, killed uh, Cincinnati and the city erupted in April of 2001. I was finishing um, Child of My Right Hand that was sort of in my mind and, and some things came together in, in both my own life um, and um, and the family story of um, an uncle and aunt who had raised their child as their own child, their daughter's child um, uh, led me to be working on this on this novel um, and so I created a character who's you know not me not really a fictional representation of me but a, a character whom I thought about and um, in this instance and I think uh, I'd like to think because still in the honeymoon phase with this novel where I still think it's, you know, the best thing I've done, you know, the, um, you know and that fades, you know, Lord let, let it continue for a while but, um, but th that sense of one's own work um, you know, fades but I, I still like this one and, um, and I think that uh, that's partially because my character Richie you know, may well be on, may or may not be on the right side of the issue. Um, by which I mean, you know, R Richie um, hears bad things in his head. He's in, he's in love with and trying to make a life with a with an African American woman. But as he thinks at a certain point, you know, why is my, you know, head the above ground storage facility for 400 years of racial garbage? Um, and um, and so in writing this novel, um, and this is my other, uh, I think a, a good piece of advice is, A, you know, moral issues, you know, are complicated. Just because you think and believe one thing doesn't mean everybody else does. If, if you weren't trying to write about complicated moral issues, then there'd be nothing to write about. If everybody believed the same thing, if everybody acted the same way, uh, then there's no drama there. And so, um, so remember that when you're working. And also, I think that uh, novels involve research. Um, different sort of research, depending on the kind of book you're working on. I spent a lot of time doing library research on this, uh, for this novel. Uh, to be totally honest, uh, uh, the, the, my department hired somebody to do some library research because I'm so, not so notoriously bad and not interested in it. 
Um, but I kind of got into it after a while. So that the, the whole history of race and, and troubled race relations in Cincinnati, where this novel was initially set, um, was something I, I came to know a great deal about. But um, I also had to do research as I imagined what it would be like um, to be in this relationship. I, you know, I've never lived with a black woman. You know, I've you know, uh, dated across racial lines at various moments, but this is not my story. But it's a story that interestingly compelled me. And so one of the things that, that um, I found it necessary to do was um, was to go dancing, you know, in, in all black clubs for a year. Now that that was great fun because I like to dance. Um, but you know, it, unless unless you you know uh, been the one white guy, you know, in a, in, in a, in a, old, in a large old black club, um, you don't know what that's like. And um, and, and I was doing that um, a, with a um, former student of mine. Um, a close friend at this point, and so um, uh, we'd go dancing for you know preparation for me writing what I knew was going to be you know a club scene. Um, and as I'd said, that the the issue um, with with Richie um, is that you know he knows that there's various things that he hears in his head that he would never say aloud. Um, that doesn't keep him from uh, hearing those things, you know. And and I suspect my, my general thesis, you know, as as it evolved in writing this novel, was I think that everybody, uh, or you know, hears those things in their head. Now, based on whose head it might be, you would hear different things. I was actually reading from this novel in India, which was a great uh, gig. And in the conversation after the reading, um, I said this is a room full of, you know, literary sorts and academics in Chandigarh, which is the Punjab uh, uh, in India, that, you know, I suspect, you know, that, that we all, you know, have these thoughts about the other. You know, in, in America it might be on race, but here it might be religion or, or perhaps caste. You know, and the room sort of erupted. You know, and uh, it was actually what can be better. It was this huge, you know, you know, conference table, and people were shouting each other about, you know, this novel couldn't be published in India, uh, and uh, you know, because it's not that long ago, you know, where, where there was the where there was the bombing thing and, and the Taj, you know, the Taj getting blown up in Mumbai, you know, and this, this was huge. So it's probably more about Pakistan and, and India, but. Yeah, uh, in their mind there. So, uh, what one of the things that I um, did in terms of research for this, and I and I, I I'm not sure I can make myself read it. So I asked my friend Brandon. I said, um, you know, uh, so I know lots of really shitty words about black people. You know, I'm a white guy. I grew up in that world, and I, when I was growing up, you know, people I knew and loved would say them. Um, but you know, I, so I know that there's a whole range, you know, of uh, of words that you know about white people, you know, and Jews, and I, it would, I would find it, you know, enormous comfort, you know, and great aid if you'd write them all down for me. 
And, uh, but do me even a larger favor and send it to me via email so we, you know, we, we don't have to sort of be looking at each other while we're doing this, this, this really painful but I think necessary thing. Um, so he did, and actually I'm not going to read that scene because uh, so this, this all comes out uh, between my characters, and again, this novel is the first half is really you know it's about identity theft also, but it's really about this couple coming together, you know, and then wanting to make a life together, and then the city erupts, you know, in the second half, so they're trying to make a life together against the city, in which. Uh, there's, there's a great deal of racial tension taking place. Um, but uh, I used all of that ugliness uh, uh, in a sex scene between Richie and, and Letitia, uh, which is when it kind of comes out in, in their desire to sort of clear away everything that might be there between them. Um, so, <clears throat> so that's as close as I'm going to get to reading it. Uh, but... Um, so my thoughts are to review them, and then I'll read you one quick section and then take a question or two. You know, don't be didactic. You know, you probably will need to do research. I think a conversion experience is a good notion. And there's some way, if you can, remember that these are complex issues and that if there was only one way of thinking about the issues you're trying to write about, there'd be no need to write about them. Um, because then we'd all agree. Um, so uh, I'm going to finish by um, reading you the prologue of Child of My Right Hand, uh, which is a moment in which the father, um, Jack, is, is speaking in, in first person about the story he's about to tell. It doesn't actually address directly the issue of homosexuality, but it sort of is set up and uh, it enforces, I think what my notion is, is that we come to thinking about issues that concern us through character and through love, perhaps. Simon could sing before he could talk, a little boy soprano, louder and more resident than children twice his age. It sounds odd, but even at 12 and 14 months, he was barrel-chested and big-muscled, especially his calves and thighs. Middle linebacker, I'd think, or a tight end like my brother, as I watched Simon toddle after his rubber ball with the joy he had for the enterprise then. The blonde little lord watched his name curls we didn't cut until he was two, the way he'd put the ball to his mouth and suck on it, as if to taste its secrets or perhaps to tell it his before he chucked it back at me, left-handed. He was prone to ear infections and slow to speak. Until he was five, my boy lived on amoxicillin like a honeybee on nectar. Ten-day runs of the bubblegum-flavored antibiotic three teaspoons a day. Then he'd finish, and the ear infections would return. His little hand to his ear, Simon standing in his crib, screaming, and let me tell you, you could hear him down the hall. What lungs? 
our firstborn and we were trying to be perfect parents and not pick him up for every little thing. He'd shake the bars, screaming, and you could hear every word. Though from 12 to 18 months, when his first set of ear tubes was inserted, his vocabulary diminished. Imagine trying to hear underwater an ear, eye, and throat doc later explained, or listening through gauze. Mommy, daddy, mommy, man, you could hear him down the hall. Not perfect pitch, he'd say years later, but almost. I remember him at two and a half after we'd returned from Jenna's sabbatical in Strasbourg, belting out, Frère Jacques, Frère Jacques, dormez-vous. The sustained note in the second vous, pure and distant as the light of a new moon, Simon smiling his cherubic grin when he finished, glad to be the center of attention even then. I remember him at three in the college preschool singing, row, row, row your boat so loudly the other kids stopped singing. And I remember <laughs> the looks on their parents' faces, not the first such looks we'd see, explaining with a sniff that some little boys were louder than others. Jenna and I used to wonder where this prodigious sound came from because neither of us were musical. Physically, Simon resembled us both, my chest and 17-inch neck, Jenna's coloring and dusky blonde hair, which in Simon darkened through adolescence until he began dyeing it. But the voice, we speculated, was the legacy of Jenna's biological father, and not just because my field is the history of science, and I'm predisposed to think that way. We assume the genetic link, a biological explanation, if you will, for complex, instinctive, and performative behavior because Simon's gift was always present, hardwired, the little boy who could sing before he could pronounce the words. Mommy, he'd said one night when he was four, sitting up in bed while Jenna sang a lullaby, Simon, with this amazing voice, and our second child, Lizzie, not quite one, but already beginning to talk. Mommy, he said, and pressed his hands to his ear, don't sing. <laughs> we laughed about that for years. Even Jenna, who was family famous for being unable to carry a tune, Mommy, don't sing, as if her voice hurt his ears, which it probably did. Mommy, don't sing. That's how I remember Simon, a sweet little boy of three and four, with this astonishing sound coming out of him, his instrument as we learned later learned to call it before all the rest, although there were signs even then. That's my training to order the unknown to create a coherent narrative from available fact. Is that science of a personal sort? Is there speculation? You bet. As soon as a child is old enough to leave your sight, there are things a parent can't know, influences beyond parental control, what we might have done differently, could have or should have if only we'd been paying close enough attention. What I want to remember, and I do, can you hear him listen? Is Simon singing at two and a half? Are you sleeping? Are you sleeping? Dormez-vous, his French and English jumbled together, but there's no mistaking that high, perfect note like the sun, my son, like first light, for he is sleeping, il dort. And this is Simon's song in three voices, Simon, Jenna, and Jack's Jack Barish, impartial researcher. This arrangement is intended to reveal the harmonies and discordances inherent in family life. More importantly, it's the only way I can bear to tell our story. Listen. Thank you.
as the scholar says, entertain a few questions, if you would like. Honey. Um, 
you know, cities in, in their region that uh, demographically, in terms of uh, white-black relations, would work. And that was Omaha or Kansas City. And I've never been to Omaha, but for reasons of personal um, past, I, I knew Kansas City pretty well, so I went back out there. And then Kansas City worked for a lot of reasons, because um, Cincinnati, you know, is a border place, and so is Kansas City, you know, between slave and free, both of them were, and place. And so then I made up my own city, you know, I could call it Calhoun City instead of Kansas City. Uh, and, and space as a, as a marker of race relations worked better in my city even than it had in Cincinnati, which, and then, you know, I thought, hell, most people haven't been to Kansas City or Cincinnati, so what the hell's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> yes? Um, I, I want to go back to the Kansas City Chose not to. Um, he was very proud of it. He certainly posted right, right, right away. You know, uh, probably I would suspect on. Uh, well, it might it might have been Amazon, but certainly you know on book sites. You know, oh, you know, that's really my story. <laughs> but, um, and he certainly has, has heard me read from. It, but I'm not sure that he's ever read the entire novel. Um, what that, you know, I offered him, you know, you know, read it, you know. But you know, it is a novel. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not a memoir. But certainly, the concern that led me to write it, you know, came out of my life. Probably the only book that I've written that way, actually. Yeah. Um. experience I'm thinking about is not necessarily a, a, a watershed in terms of change of opinion about something, but um, although it can be. Uh, but I think that it's also some sort of conversion of experience to either to sort of care about it now. I mean, like in, the, in Twelfth and Race, what, what I mean, um, Richie's attitudes about race he never had to confront until he fell, fell, you know, began living with a with an African American woman, and so it's that's the conversion experience where you know it's like, you know, if you may, it's otherwise it's static. You know, if you don't, if there's no movement in terms of your relation to the issue you're thinking about, then then you are preaching to your own choir. You know what I mean? And so that's what I'm. What I, what I mean by it, that somehow your your position 
uh, in relation to what it is you're trying to write about changes because, you know, you're never forced to really think about it before. You know, um, you're, if you've never been, you know, in a world in which you are the other, then you don't know what that feels like. You know, so I guess that's what I, what I mean. I'm not saying that somebody, you know, goes from being in the arrogant brotherhood, you know, uh, and, then, and then comes out and, and, and is working, you know, in an urban center, you know, um, feeding poor kids. That's, you know, well, that, well, that's an interesting plot. <laughs> Somebody defending the kingdom from somebody from 
someone who didn't defend it. But nonetheless, you know, that issue is certainly there. And I just decided, well, hell, you know, I'm going to be dead sometime. And I, I think about this stuff all the time, and I'm going to write it. But yeah, it's certainly the worry, yeah. Speaking of the other, I'm curious to know if among your hot button uh, issues that you care most about, the gay rights might be part of them, having a gay son. Oh, yeah. And I wonder whether or not. Um, you got the first uh, same sex wedding in Oxford, Ohio. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, my question is whether or not his um, identifying and being that informed whatever he might have. Chosen from his life to incorporate into your writing, and whether or not you, as a father and as a writer, sort of combining the two or somehow connecting between the two personas, um, was able to figure out how he came to it, how he accepted it, how he expressed it to the world. Now, did any of that ever inform your writing, give you the fact that it included his? experience with some of your writing, and how did you know how he was if you're not gay? Well, um, well, uh, how I, <clears throat> you knew my son, you would, you would know that, that, um, that how he's feeling is right out there. <laughs> It's an interesting question, you know, about audience. You know, are you on, are you only writing for people who are going to agree with you? Is that would that be a simple way to, to to rephrase your question? You know, like like if this is going to upset the reader, then I wouldn't write about it. I um, I th I mean I think that that um, my answer to that is, is that in general you can only really write well about things that feel charged about, you know, I mean, and, and, and in general, I think that hot button issues, you know, they're different, clearly for different people. And so things that, that 
kind of uh, get your juices going, whatever they might be, or w what you should be writing about. It's really hard, I think, to be writing about things you don't that you don't care about. You know, that don't get you. You know, if you want to get down to work each morning, you got to have something that excites you. And so, I think in that sense, I don't think you can worry too much about about whether people agree with you. I mean, I when, when you're working, that, I think that's for later. I don't know if that's useful or, or not. Um, I think we have to go. It's, it's 12. Um, thanks for all the questions and thanks for coming.